most original and creative talent in our business, would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again, come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Buck Benny, the two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses. Well, Joel again. This is Buck Benny speaking. Welcome to another episode of Orson Wells. Uh, we have our friend uh, Terry Phillips with us. Uh, John Henderson is with us as well. Oh. And Kathy fuller Sealing. So we're delighted to have us all here to chat a little bit about Orson and a little bit about this episode. Just to let you know, we're kind of redoing this episode. We uh, recorded it before and then I, I misplaced the recording, so we decided we would do it again. Um, and and uh, I did it another time by myself before that, so this is a few times I revisited this episode. Anyway, um, I think we'll go with uh, Terry first and and just to see if there's anything that's kind of stuck out with him in this episode. So go ahead. Well, I think one thing that's always important with these Orson Welles commentaries, and particularly the earlier ones, is to uh, get a little context. This was September 30th, 1945. Uh, it was less than a month after the end of the Second World War. Uh, Japan had surrendered on September the 2nd. And so naturally for Orson Welles listeners, the war was very much on everyone's mind. The previous references that he made because this wasn't his first commentary but the, the the program just before this included a mention by wells about uh, some language on the back of a parking uh, garage receipt that uh, that said no bailment created here and <laughs> what was funny i think when we talked about that particular episode i uh, being the, the the smart aleck in the past year i said well you know i spent a year in law school guys and blah 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 uh and so wells apparently heard from a lot of lawyers after that and he discusses that here um being um always a champion of civil rights he talks a little bit about a singer named thelma carpenter and uh, she was uh, fabulously popular but of course there were always people who had to bring up the fact that she was not she didn't look like everybody else she wasn't of european origin she was african-american and um, so he talks a little bit about her appearance on the eddie Cantor program um, but mostly he talks about things related to the war and the post-war period uh, particularly uh, with respect to um, old blood and guts meaning um, uh, General uh, George Patton and Eisenhower. At the end of this episode, he mentions a movie that he had just seen, which is called The True Glory. He called it the Eisenhower picture. It was introduced by Ike, but not really so much about him as it was about the uh, the heroic uh, actions of uh, those who fought in the Second World War. Uh, I won't talk about the bullfighting story yet, because I'm sure we all want to weigh into that, but just a couple more uh, historical points of historical context. Uh, the day before this episode was broadcast, uh, September 29th, the Chicago Cubs won the National League pennant. 
and that didn't happen again for a long time. <laughs> um, and the, the day of this broadcast, Hank Greenberg of the Detroit Tigers, one of my former hometowns, hit a grand slam to uh, bring the Tigers to uh, the American League pennant victory. So it was a big uh, couple of days in, uh, in sports. Nice. Excellent. Thank you, Terry. Um, John, anything for you kind of stood out in this one or, or that you want I wonder to if this is, is this before or after the famous incident with Hank Greenberg that uh, started the Jack Benny recurring joke, Greenberg's on third. There was a World Series where like he was on third and he didn't run for it. So anyway, I thought, yeah, I don't know if you know when that happened, but no. probably I after think that. this predates that, I want to yeah. say, but I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's always, you've got two ways that you can listen to Orson Welles. One is uh, at bedtime, where you're not really listening, you're just letting him lull you to sleep. Yes. So <laughs> that's how I like to enjoy Orson Welles. But if you uh, if you really sit and you listen to it, um, I don't like to get into politics too much, right. whether it's modern politics or 1930s or 40s politics. Yeah. Uh, but it is interesting to listen to where the thoughts of people and the opinions were from this period in history. So I thought that was really interesting. Right. Uh, but my favorite part, of course, is sitting and listening to the stories. And the story of the, uh, the bullfighting uh, you know, thing, I thought, was the most enjoyable part of the, the whole story. Especially the, the sort of the idea of uh, being at a church or a chapel... And you've got the kid who's praying to God for the life of the bull who he loves. And then you've got the bullfighter who's praying to God for his own life. And you know, that's not going to, well, it doesn't, not going to work well for somebody. So, I, yeah. And, and then to hear the resolution is also satisfying. Agreed. Agreed. Kathy, we'll swing over to you. Well, um, I'm always glad to uh, get to revisit uh, these episodes and and like John I'm oh and uh, Terry I'm always so impressed to get this snapshot of of life um, at, at the very end of the war um, um, as I said the the way my undergraduates understand it is that that you know the whole uh, all of America just goes to Disneyland um, uh, even if it hadn't been built yet you know if, if you just think about the celebrations of the war being uh, over without all the thinking about all the tremendous number of things that were happening, Europe starving that he mentions, um, uh, you know, this and that. And I was curious um, if anybody has an opinion, does the Astoria Bonita the Bill relate to what's going on in late September, 1945? Is it the fate of the world that is in balance here between the little boy and, you know, or is it America that we're, you know, celebrating, um, you know, the um, um, coming out of the war? I, I would just be curious if anybody cares to make a connection because it's probable that somewhere in there Orson did. So, yeah, Orson usually did. Mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Orson usually would connect those things up and, and, uh, when I was listening to this, I was thinking the same thing. I was going, okay, how does this, what does this relate to? Why is he sharing this? And I don't know other than the fact he could not have a connection in that he's been talking about bullfighting in general. And then this could be simply a story that he enjoyed about 
bullfighting and so shared it that way i'm not sure but terry did you can you you're usually well, our guy who can connect things uh, together and i'm going i don't know what you connect to them to, to paraphrase sigmund freud sometimes a story is just a story <laughs> <laughs> that's great it's, but it's a fine question kathy i i don't know either and uh i wouldn't be shocked to discover somewhere in his in his uh, archives that uh, orson wells did have some uh, metaphorical thoughts in mind for this story but i don't know it's the, it certainly was not obvious to me no mm -mm. the ongoing mysteries of orson uh, <laughs> well the one that i wanted to comment on just a little bit is the apparently a, a, a big deal was made about eddie Cantor having a black female singer on his show without saying she was black and just introducing her as the singer and uh, of course the bit orson talks about in here is how he was impressed with Cantor's response that Cantor said well i've never introduced a white singer as oh this is my white singer um having said all that hey there's a couple strange things about this one is that i feel like on the bing crosby show he'd had a number of black performers and would continue to have a number of black performers and never introduce anybody as black uh, this i have a great black singer here that i thought i'd bring out for you i mean it, 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 it he never says that the only thing i wonder about is did bing crosby singers happen to sound more black than this eddie Cantor singer in that you know when you have satchmo come on and sing for you people know what they're getting and they don't and and they they understand it and then a number of the black as i think of all the different black performers that i've heard on uh crosby's show it's pretty obvious that they're black they have this their style is is very much makes you go oh that, that must be a black singer that's singing this even though you don't know the singer maybe in Cantor's case I don't know all I can assume is that maybe it was a black singer that sounded very white and so you're going well oh we didn't know she was a black singer and maybe people got offended I don't know what the deal was there why they why they made a, a big deal of that. that's one two for me is is the best way to try and integrate uh black um performers acting like they're not black performers and just treating them like they're white or just treating them like they're like you're colorblind or would it be better to say we have this wonderful um uh, i don't know if you bring in a black singer or something i don't know if you because you're trying to get the audience to realize i would hope that it's okay to have black singers on it's okay to have you want to have all cultures represented and and if you have a great singer it shouldn't matter what nationality they are or what race they are but uh i don't know if if if, if it's interesting to figure to try and think of what would be the best way to do this and i don't know what the best way certainly bing's way of doing it was just to hey if i can find a great singer i'm going to have them on my show it doesn't matter um and and just never i don't think he ever touched on that issue now he would joke around with the singer and the singer might themselves mention like 
performing with other black performers and so forth. I mean, it may come out in the in their kind of banter back and forth. I don't know if on Eddie Cantor's show if there was any banter between he and, and the singer or whether she just came out and sang and then that was it. Um, I'd have to go back and try and dig up that episode, which I probably should do now that I think about it. Go ahead, Kathy. Daryl, I just you're um you're so right, and this is worthy of research for like an article. But this was happening in so many places that it's never been pulled together in 1945. Butterfly McQueen was on Red Skelton's show as the president of his fan club, and it was not said that she was African American. Right. And she did that in response to when she'd been on the Jack Benny show, she had to play Butterfly the Maid was a heavily raced, uh, racialized character yeah. um, uh, that Butterfly did not care for the stereotypes that were being put on her. So, um, and at the same time, Eddie Anderson is trying to make uh, um, the movie, the latest version of Brewster's Millions, where he's just part of the gang. And just at that time, uh, the um, a police chief of Memphis says, oh no, it's too much fraternization and bans the film. So um, I, I think uh, this is a fabulous um, case of Orson, and Orson Welles ends up throwing himself into the middle of all of this, because he'll talk about who gets to go on USO tours, and he asks Jack Benny to do better. And so um, it's uh, fascinating to see through this lens, a complicated series of uh, hopeful attempts at um, better race relations and integration into the U.S. and the complex numbers of reactions that were coming out of it. So I appreciate your um, interest and curiosity about it. Yeah, yeah. And you'll and, make me have to write that article. <laughs> yeah, no, you go for it. <laughs> but uh, I, I thought it was interesting what you said there. You were, you were saying that a police chief banned a film i didn't know police yeah. chiefs could ban films or that they were <laughs> yep. yeah no he had made himself he had made himself the film censor for that yeah. uh segregated southern city and um it raised a um a huge uproar in the movie business of a uh, terrifying studios that eddie anderson's appearance in a film in a, in a relatively secondary role would get the film banned and right. so it so what well, the whole the whole banning of things because in our modern society that's starting to go around again is interesting in that who's banning who's the person banning and who's are they banning it because they object to it or are they banning it because they're getting so much pushback from a certain contingency of folks that are that are pushing them and they're banning it uh, uh I, I think the whole concept of of whether you ban something or don't ban something and who bans it is is just interesting topic always uh to see what their thinking was at the time of course um, for uh, a lot of movie makers uh, promoters having uh, been banned in boston was something that they would take advantage of for marketing you know it was a bad yes. image. in the case of Thelma uh, carpenter i listened to a lot of her music uh, she's she was really wonderful i i often thought that she reminded me a little bit of billy holiday um partly because of this, just the sound of her voice, but also the way she interpreted songs. It was reminiscent to me of Billie Holiday. Um, but it, it's, we just can't get away from, from race in this country. It's been with us from the very beginning, from before yeah. we were a country. And I am sad to say that I expect it'll be with us long 
after the United States is uh, part of history, uh, you know, assuming that we go the way of all empires someday. But in, in her specific case, it was just, you know, a sad reminder of this gash that we have in our on our national soul. Well, and I think it's interesting how, like I said, with Bing Crosby, he was doing some of the same things, but didn't get called out for it. But I think even probably her being on other venues and things, maybe not getting called out. It's just interesting how you can do the same thing you've always done, and then somebody gets offended by it, or somebody realizes what's going on, and and then they raise a stink about it, and so then it becomes an issue where you're like, okay, well, why wasn't that an issue a week before this, or why wasn't why why didn't that become a huge issue? and ban all black performers from from being in radio or whatever you, you're all i'm always wondering what sort of started it and then what kind of brought it down and why you know it, who knows with these things it's it's just interesting how they happen um john you looks like you were going to say something oh i was just going to say i've been i've been reading this book uh it's called jack benny in the golden age of american radio comedy and it talks about how is, is it a good jack book? benny was doing the same thing throughout the years and yet his the reaction to him was different over the years agreed agreed yeah that that author of that piece is so interesting and and <laughs> has some some deep thoughts to share on these sorts of things um do we even i i see that that Kathy has a picture of that book behind her. What what's the deal with that? Why 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 are you interested in that book? I don't know, Kathy. <laughs> uh, well, uh, uh, the picture was given to me. They slapped it up on the wall somewhere. Uh, her book was published by UT Authors, and I was sitting next to a math book and a sociology. Book. <laughs> well, and Kathy is the author of that book. Just for people who are still wondering, because now they think about it. These are these are not necessarily our Benny fans listening to this episode. This is our Orson. Oh, fans. oh yeah. Well, so who knows? So anyway, it, it it's a wonderful book by Kathy that John's referring to, and it does shed some in, insight and, and a and a look on this that, as Kathy was saying earlier, we don't have a lot of people giving us insight into this time frame and what was going on with with uh, the black. Um, I don't know, history at this time frame or whatever. We seem to focus more on the, the 50s and the 60s and that sort of thing, but uh, it's still interesting. Uh, and, and, and a, and a go good point, because uh, these Orson Welles programs become one of the best, most interesting ways to investigate that, because uh, as uh, John and, and Terry have said, um, uh, trying to end racism, trying to um, uh, uh, push for civil rights was such... Um, uh, you know, a heartfelt and and um, um, major theme of of these shows, and so I'm so thrilled that you've uh, asked us to to listen to them and go through them as a way of investigating this. Yeah, it's been terrific. Um, uh, I'll I'll change our gears here a little bit, unless anybody else has anything they want to cover on this one. But um, I'll switch to the bull story because we haven't really talked about that. The this story for me. I, I don't want to give away the ending to it because you guys are going to listen to that in a couple minutes. Hopefully, please listen to the Orson show. Don't just listen to our intro. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, it's an inter it's a fun story. Uh, I like this story. I the only thing I'm struck with is my feeling that that story uh, is more of a fantasy than anything else, and and I, and I doubt uh, 
if that happened in reality in any way, shape, or form, uh, I would think it was a very, very rare occurrence from what we would normally see in a bullfight. But uh, that's the only caveat I'll throw on that. Um, anybody else have anything to share? Any? Well, I, he does say that that's a, a rare occurrence in the, yes. the story itself. But my guess is it's something like he re reads a headline like bull spared. And then he creates this whole like <laughs> he's such a storyteller. He could take yes. that and turn it into a story like this. Yes. Yes. And it, it it's a nice story. I mean, it's a feel good story for sure. Um, Terry, any thoughts on, on the bull story or? Um, I, uh, I defer to, to Orson Welles. <laughs> I was curious that he said it came from a story that he'd gotten the story from Robert J. Flaherty. And Flaherty did Nanook of the North. He was a, a, a documentary, film documentary maker of, of, of the South Seas, of, you know, of, of uh, Eskimos, of things like that. Yeah. Deeply interested in, in um, the human condition. And it's like, okay, and bulls. So, <laughs> yeah, huh? That's different. Uh, you, you never know with horse war. <laughs> I, I mean, it could have been a story they shared at a party, you know, that they, he knew that Orson was into bullfighting. And so he shares this story with Orson. Orson's like, oh, I'll take that and run with it. So, anyway, uh, great episode, uh, very enjoyable. And then, uh, and surrounded by a number of good episodes before and after this. So, so uh, Orson's, Orson's commentaries throughout were so interesting, the way that they would change and, and the sub, sometimes they'd be more political and then they'd be less political and then they would uh, change over to be more about his, um, what was going on with Orson's professional life, his play that he was putting on and things. I, I find these just to be fascinating. I just, it's, it's too bad we only have one year's worth and that's all he ever created, but at least we have it, yes. These are so much like um, uh, today's podcasts. Yes. You know, personal reflections as opposed to what we think of as the golden age of, uh, 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 you know, of uh, American radio, where everything's so polished and, and commercial. And, um, you know, there were uh, uh, all kinds of commentators, but they were usually talking about, you know, national news. And I think it's so interesting how Orson... Um, uh, in these shows, brings in um, uh, the poetic, the personal. Like I said, it, it, that makes them seem very fresh and much like what podcasters today are doing. Even yeah. to the point where at the beginning of this, he talks about the fact that this uh, microphone is in his home and you might hear the dog barking. Right. As I, yeah. I don't know if you just did hear. Uh, or his his uh, daughter, might be. you might hear her crying. It, it was very, very personal very, and very much... Uh, in that style of uh, putting the listener in the place where the story is, uh, or in this case, the commentary is uh, being presented. You, you really feel like you're there. Yeah, I agree. And that's uh, what makes this so interesting is how much, like you say, they, they seem like a modern day podcast that he's creating. Um, the other person that does this really well, that whose um, who's podcasts are getting released now, uh, on a weekly basis uh, is Lucille Ball, where she uh, uh, interviews different folks. And sometimes she's on a back lot. She seems to be kind of all over the place. And they really feel like, oh, this is, there's there's podcasts today that are almost exactly like hers, whether it's like Conan O'Brien's podcast or whether you listen to uh, 
a lot there's a lot of comedians that are interviewing other comedians or interviewing other folks that that are creating these um and to think that she was doing this back in the early 60s and they didn't I don't think they knew exactly what to do with it or or anything so that's why it probably only lasted about a year but but it, it today they have extra resonance and the sound quality of them is so high and they were recorded so well that it just makes them seem like they were recorded yesterday for our, for a current audience but you get to hear folks that are long gone uh that you've never heard in this context before talking about what they're cooking uh, what their favorite food is for cooking and uh, what their hobbies are and things that questions that you don't normally get from an interviewer necessarily they're not always just plugging their next uh production they're they're talking about their lives and their kids and things and so i think that's interesting john looks and like you're going to say like something. the majority of podcasts it goes for about a year doesn't take off and they abandon it yeah <laughs> pretty much <laughs> can i mean it certainly happened with, with both of these yes yes <laughs> well i think we'll end with that and uh, thanks everybody for tuning in and i hope you enjoy all these versions so bye everybody Stay tuned for KECA's new commentary, Orson Welles. This is Orson Welles, come to call again for a talk about people and the things they're doing all over the world. Then there's the story I promised for this week. We'll get to the story in just a minute. First, just a word about Lear Incorporated. Lear, that's L-E-A-R, makers of Lear radios and sponsors of this program. It may be news to you that Lear has been making radios since 1930. More likely than not, you haven't heard the name Lear until recently. That's because the radios that Lear has been building for 15 years have been very special radios. Radios that were made for a very exacting purpose. They are aircraft radios, the kind of instruments that men stake the safety of their planes and their passengers upon. Today, Lear radios are in use in the air lanes all the way from Alaska to South America. This is why we say, since 1930... Lear has been the name men fly by. Now, for the first time, Lear is making home radios as well as aircraft radios. And when this kind of craftsmanship and forward thinking go into home radios, they become instruments of unusual excellence. We'll tell you more about these sets a little later. Now, Mr. Wells brings you his views and opinions on events as he sees them. The opinions are his own and do not necessarily represent the views of Lear Incorporated. Ladies and gentlemen, my views are not necessarily represented by the sign I told you about in the ABC parking lot. You remember I mentioned that sign last week. It says, no bailment created here. And rashly offered free radio tickets to anyone who could decode the phrase for me. Well, I spent most of this last week paying off. Your obedient servant has never had so much mail before in his life. I'm forced to one of two conclusions. That the only people who don't know what to create bailment means are me and the man who runs the parking lot or that every living member of the Bar Association listens to this show. A solemn thought. To protect myself from distractions like that sign, I've moved this microphone all the way out to our house in Brentwood, California. And although this is still the American Broadcasting Company, I'd like you to know about the new branch studio they've opened in our living room. It'll help explain any unrehearsed sound effects we may feature from time to time, such as the merry jingle of a Cocker Spaniel's license tag, which punctuated some of our more earnest moments on the last broadcast, or the lusty wail of an eight-month-old daughter, a sound I'm expecting any time now from the nursery above. Well, I notice in the paper there's some talk about a new naval uniform. Seems like a good idea to me. Never could understand why they made sailors' pants so wide at the bottom when they need the material so desperately up above. 
Eddie Cantor, as you may have heard, added somebody new to his radio show last week, Thelma Carpenter. She's a singer, and in the continuity, she's brought in as a friend of the family, not as a servant. On the air, that's a fine, fresh way of treating a Negro artist. Last night, I heard somebody ask Eddie why, in his introduction, he made no mention of the fact that Miss Carpenter's colored. I liked Eddie's answer. In my life, he said, I've introduced a lot of singers, but I've never described one of them as a white singer. It reminded me of a story about General Eisenhower in London. Before D-Day in Ike's staff, there was a British officer who was pretty stupid and pompous and got on everybody's nerves more than some. An American colonel came to Eisenhower one day with a beef about him. I just can't get anything done, he complained, with that ignorant British blankety-blank so-and-so. I think I know the man you mean, said the supreme commander of the Allied forces in Europe. He's certainly the most trying and inefficient officer I've ever had to work with. He is, as you say, ignorant. You have my permission to call him a blankety-blank anytime you want to, because it's true. But you cannot call him a British blankety-blank in my presence. You may describe him as a so-and-so, but I will not tolerate your calling him a British so-and-so. Eisenhower got rid of the so-and-so, and the colonel who called him a British so-and-so was relieved of his duty and went back to the States. Speaking of Eisenhower, we saw his motion picture the other night. We have time. I'd like to tell you about it. First, a word or two about the news. We don't know yet what Ike had to say to Patton, who wants to give Bavaria back to the Nazis, apparently. We'll probably never hear the exact words, which is a shame. Old blood and guts has put his foot in it before. This time, my guess is he's in it way over his shiny boots, above the pearl-handled shooting irons and right up to the well-known lacquered helmet. But the truth is, old B&G isn't the only champion of a soft piece for Germany. Many of the things we're up to in Germany and in Japan are a source of worried suspicion to our recent allies. Jimmy Burns has made the Russians particularly unhappy these last three weeks. And Truman's denials notwithstanding, the London Conference of Foreign Ministers is a washout, a hopeless flop. Here at home, men close to the scene are saying that the president's political honeymoon is over. Many top-flight operators who worked their hearts out for Roosevelt at low salaries are now heeding the siren song of better pay or leaving government for business. According to them, Harry Truman's Little Man Act is wearing thin to the people who are thrown out of work and can't get unemployment insurance. The president won't be able to keep many valuable young men in government service unless he persuades them soon that he's really fighting for the program on which he and Roosevelt were elected. They don't mind a losing battle, but they do want the chance to get at least one belt in before the gong rings. And in England, in the new Labour government, the same kind of young men are grumbling about McDonaldism. Younger Labour members in the House of Commons are insisting out loud that their administration apply the basic policy on which it was elected. For Britain's foreign office, the two great problems today, of course, are one, India, where promised radical changes in administration have yet to be made, and two, Palestine, where, past all argument, the doors must be opened much more widely for the Jews of Europe. Domestically, of course, Britain's first problem is the need for food. Friends of mine just off the plane from England say that the British people have given less, getting less to eat now if possible and during the Blitz. Of course, on the continent, things are immeasurably worse. Well, it seems the woman from Weehawken still thinks I'm a loony who wants to give America away to the foreigners. In her latest letter, she accuses me of wanting to feed the world. Madam, I wish I could. The world is very hungry and hungry is a bad word, and hunger is not a symptom of peace. Madam, your government and mine promised food for starving Europe. We're not keeping our promise. With other nations, we pledged our share of food to UNRWA, but unlike other nations, we aren't honoring that pledge. What other nations, you ask? Well, Canada, for instance. 
Canada has just started meat rationing again to try to help stop the spread of famine abroad. Who's to blame? No individual, no group, no agency is willing to admit particular responsibility. Really, it's all of us who failed, who've fallen down. You know, we promised 4,921 tons of dried eggs. We've not yet delivered a single egg, not even a rotten one. We pledged 3,943 tons of margarine and 34,446 tons of sugar. We failed on those pledges. If it's our fault, madam, yours and mine, what can we do about it? Well, we can wire the White House, the Secretary of Agriculture, and our congressman. Our congressmen aren't even talking about the matter nowadays. Seems there aren't any votes in Europe. All in all, I think you and I are being pretty poorly represented these days by the politicians we elected to Congress. The Senate, you know, is stripping the Wagner-Murray full employment bill of its meaning and all possible effectiveness. Taft claims there's no panacea to unemployment. Perhaps some of our senators are willing to see a few millions waiting in line at the soup kitchens. But the men who found jobs in wartime, and above all, the men who fought in the war, won't be content to consider unemployment one of the blessings of peace. Last week, I started a story dedicated to all those who've been objecting to our references to bullfighting and who sympathize with the bull. A fighting bull is the hero of this story, and it's a true story. His name was Bonito. He grew up in a place where fighting bulls are raised with a little boy, the son of one of the ranch hands. They spent most of their time together, these two. They were as close friends as a boy and his dog ever are. Now, if I were to tell you that my daughter was playing in the jungle with a lion or a king cobra, it would be no less remarkable than this because no living thing is more innately vicious, more terribly dangerous, more untamable than the fighting bull. And Bonito was no weakling to all appearances. He was the superior of any of the animals bred up to that time on that famous ranch. Yet, he was like a puppy with a little boy. And as he grew, as wise and gentle as a good old horse, retired to the pastures. Well, imagine the consternation when the two were discovered together one day, the beast feeding out of the child's hand. It was believed by all that despite his handsome looks, Bonito would prove a coward. When his time came to be sent to the city for the corrida, the owner doubted little that here was an animal appointed to disgrace a proud breed. The little boy ran off in the night and followed to the place where his beloved pet must meet his death. A sad time for the little boy, you can be sure. Before the tragedy, he went to pray for the creature to whom he had given all his childish love. And there, in the chapel, kneeling at the altar beside him, the little boy saw the great matador who was to kill Bonito or be killed by him. They prayed side by side, the boy for the bull's life, the torero for his own, then left by separate doors, the bullfighter to prepare for the paseo to brief his quadrilla, to wait in the shadows under the arena, sweating with fear, as matadors always do, even on the coolest afternoon. The little boy to spend a last tearful moment with his friend, the big black wise-looking beast, waiting for death in the wooden cage. Music and the great roar of the crowd. Doors suddenly opened before the bull. The hornet sting of the ranch colors spiked into the great hump of muscle on his back. A fine entrance. Here was a great bull, and the crowd knew it. The critics leaned forward in their seats. Now, a great faena is preserved for the students of the art in careful records. And to this day, we know exactly how the great bull and the great matador worked together in the blazing plaza on that historic afternoon. Every move of the cape, how Bonito charged and charged again, straight as a locomotive, noble as a hero out of Homer. But of all this, the little boy saw nothing. He could not watch. If he had tried, he would have seen nothing for the tears. Then came time for the kill. 
The moment of truth, the Spaniards call it. The sword was raised. Silence choked the plaza. Then, at the very last instant, the stillness was shattered by the cry of a trumpet. The executioner lowered his sword, smiling. Hand flushed with such triumph as comes in a lifetime, to few men left the arena. His adversary, still furiously alive, stood his ground under the cruel sun. Then spoke the highest authority of the corita, addressing himself in formal tones to the victorious bull. Bonito, you are more than brave. We have seen you reaffirm the dignity and splendor of the art and of the breed. We therefore pardon you. Go back to the place of your birth and beget more of your kind. And so it happened, as sometimes happens, but very rarely, that for extreme bravery, a bull was spared his life. But Bonito, still blind with rage, understood no word of this and feeling no gratitude, refused to leave the ring. They sent the cows in after him, but he turned on them and they, poor creatures, stampeded, panicked. He had won this ground in battle and he would not budge. Then a great gasp, a shudder of fear and outrage went up in the plaza. Somehow a little boy had jumped into the center of the ring. Men turned their eyes away from the expected horror, but when they looked again, wonder of wonders, there was the little boy standing cool and safe beside Bonita, this phenomenon of fury, this terror among fighting bulls. And what was the child doing? Patting the head between the frightful horns. And if they'd known it, whispering words of comfort to an old friend. Amazed, they saw the great Bonito nuzzle this child like a colt, then move politely after him, like a little dog, out of the ring. And so the two went back to their ranch together, and Bonito, according to the terms of his pardon, had many brave sons. And in the fullness of time, so did his little friend. Since this story is perfectly true, I'm very glad to tell you that they both lived happily ever after. Before I leave, I'd like you to hear about an awfully good picture we saw last night, but first... Your attention, please, for an interesting announcement. Now, just a word about Lear Home Radios. You probably know why I emphasize the word home. It's because the name Lear has been known mostly for its very fine aircraft radios. Now, the kind of skill and craftsmanship that make Lear aircraft radios so outstanding is going into radios that you can buy for your home. Some models include television. Some have the wonderful Lear wire recorder. And there are record players with automatic record changers, a new static-free FM, and world-scanning shortwave. With so much quality and advanced engineering knowledge built into these radios, you might expect they'd cost a lot. But that just isn't so with Lear radios. They're right along in price with radios far less distinguished. There's a table model at $19.95. And at the other end of the line, there's a beautiful console with the best of everything at $500. The more you appreciate fine reproduction, the more you'll recognize their fine performance and agree that Lear gives you the most for every dollar you spend. Remember the name Lear, L-E-A-R. And now a few words about next week. Like you, we thought we had our fill of war commentaries, but The True Glory by Carol Reed and Garson Kanan is by so much the best that we abandoned all resistance to more battle footage and gave in to a really great experience. The true glory. It's the Eisenhower picture. Please don't miss it. Well, now the clock tells me I must say goodbye. Please let me come to call again. And thanks for this time. Until then, speaking for my sponsors, the makers of Lear Radios, and my daughter upstairs, who's been nice enough not to spoil her daddy's broadcast, I remain, as always, 
obediently yours. This is the American Broadcasting Company. 10.30 at KECA, Los Angeles. By trans.